Tonight's Bible reading is Psalm 145, which is page 925 in the Church Bibles and 631 in the large print Bibles. I will exalt you, my God and King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no man can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of your glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Thanks, Jill. Uh, Let's pray as we come to God's word. Grace is the Lord and most worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. Lord God, we acknowledge that you are a great God. And we can't, in our human minds, fully appreciate your greatness. And so we do pray this evening that you would reveal something more of your greatness to us that would be full of adoration for you. And that you would equip us to proclaim your greatness to the world around us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know, it's been a tough few years for the uh, the royal family. 
and the government of our country. We've had three different prime ministers in the, the space of seven weeks. Our Queen, who served us so faithfully for 70 years, has passed away. And her son, King Charles, has inherited um, a somewhat dysfunctional family with an estranged son who's been publicly airing his grievances and a brother who's been banned from royal duties as a result of past scandals. At the end of the day, they're all human and flawed, as we all are, and just as the kings of Israel were. Even King David, who was called by God as a man after his own heart, was guilty of adultery and murder. And so it's a wonderful encouragement to come to this psalm, which speaks of a very different king. A king whose acts are mighty, wonderful, awesome, great. He is good and gracious and compassionate and rich in love. His kingdom doesn't just last 44 days like one prime minister or even 70 years like our queen, but it lasts forever. This psalm is acknowledgement that God is so great that as we uh, just read, we as humans can never fully appreciate his glory. Great is the Lord, it says, and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Other translations have his greatness is unsearchable. It is limitless. But I quite like no one can fathom. It's like trying to measure the, the depths of the ocean. They're just so deep. And the question we want to be asking ourselves this evening is, how much are we in awe of God? How much are we amazed by his greatness? How much time do we spend in adoration of God? On the one hand, you can't force adoration. But you can force yourself to focus on someone or something and allow yourself to be filled with admiration for them. As you may know, Liz and I went recently trekking in the, the Himalayas. And when walking in the mountains, you can spend your time looking at your feet to make sure you don't fall over, which can be wise at times. Or you can stop and just look at the beauty around you. You don't need to force yourself to admire the beauty. You will just be filled with admiration for it. It's the same with God. We can be so focused on all the things we need to do in our daily lives and be oblivious to the glory and beauty of God. Or we can stop and consider God. We're not forcing ourselves to admire God, but we're giving ourselves space and time to be filled with admiration for him. And when we do that, it's not that our personal problems go away or don't matter, but if we have a bigger view of God, then we're able to see our own problems and worries in the right perspective. So let's have a look at the psalm then. Psalm 145 is what's known as an acrostic psalm, which means that each verse in the psalm, plus an extra couple in verse 13, starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and there's 22 of those. It's a literary device used for a purpose to show the comprehensiveness of God, the total praiseworthiness of God. The word all or every is repeated 16 times here, again emphasizing the unlimited comprehensiveness of the praise of the Lord. The Lord is praised every day. 
He's praised forever and ever. He's praised from one generation to the next by all his people, for all his works. And the psalm finishes with a climactic, let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. What comes through there as you read this, this psalm is it's been written by somebody who's on fire for God. You cannot find enough words to, to praise him. So what's the key thing about God that he's trying to, to communicate? Well, isn't it that God is king? First line starts, I will exalt you, my God the king. The one and only, the true king. There is only one king. And the rest of the psalm communicates two aspects that you would look for in a perfect king. First of all, he has the power to do what he wants to do. And secondly, he has the compassion with which to do it. A king who has compassion but no power to do what he wants to do is of no use. The Dalai Lama has lots of friends and people who admire him, but little power because he's controlled by the Chinese authorities. On the other hand, the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has much power, but no compassion for his citizens, who are believed to be 150 to 200,000 political citizen prisoners in the country. Many of the subjects experiencing hunger and poverty while billions are spent on the military. On the latest World Watch list are produced by Open Doors. Just this past week, North Korea again appears in the top spot. God, on the other hand, is a powerful king and a compassionate king. So let's praise him for these two aspects of his character. Firstly, praise God that he is a powerful king. Those praising God in verses 4 to 7 tell off, we read here, his mighty acts, the glorious splendor of his majesty, his wonderful works, the power of his awesome works, his great deeds. Verse 11 to 13, they tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might, of his mighty acts and the glorious splendor of his kingdom. But it does raise the question, what exactly does his, his kingdom look like? How does it compare with the idea of a kingdom we might have today? Well, if you were here a couple of years ago, you may remember that we did a, a Bible overview using Vaughan um, Roberts' book called God's Big Picture. And the de- definition of the kingdom of God that he used, borrowed from Graham Goldsworthy, is this. God's people in God, God's place under God's rule and enjoying God's blessing. And in his Bible overview, he, he divides the Bible up into to nine sections, which are all related to the theme of God's kingdom. As you move across, you'll see that it starts with a pattern of the kingdom, where God creates Adam and Eve, and his people. He puts them in the garden of Eden, his place, where they can enjoy his many blessings if they follow one rule which is not to eat anything from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, as we know, they, they break that rule, they, they lose the blessing, which means the kingdom is perished. And so the rest of the story is about God's promise, the promised kingdom to restore the kingdom. He does that partially through choosing Israel, but he prophesies that he will do it fully through the Messiah, the, the anointed king. And so when Jesus, the uh, 
the Messiah arrives. He begins his public ministry by teaching. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus did all that was necessary to restore the present kingdom through his death and resurrection. And in the book of Acts, we see the church proclaiming that kingdom. But Jesus didn't finish the job. He ascended into heaven and said that he would one day come to gather his people to join him in a perfected kingdom. And the reason for the delay being to enable more people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ so they can put their trust in him and become part of his kingdom. So in the fully restored kingdom, God's people will be Christians from all nations. God's place will be the new creation. And God's rule will be the blessings they enjoy in his presence. And that's why when we go back to the psalm, we see it speaks of the fact that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. It's not just a kingdom that will last a, a few years. The Bible mentions lots of human kings of Israel, some good, some bad, but they, they all came to an end. That God's kingdom covers all generations from Adam through to when Jesus comes again. It will never end. And that gives us great encouragement um, when we see what is going on in our society, when we despair at the decisions of our leaders, who are only there because God has placed them, as, as we heard this morning, and yet those who trust in their own abilities. Human leaders spend a lot of their time playing political games, getting people on their side, so they're able to do what they want to do. What's different about God's kingship is that he already has the power to do what he pleases. As it says in Psalm 115, our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. God is never forced to do something that he doesn't want to do. He's never a victim of circumstance. He does whatever he pleases and therefore he takes great pleasure in it because he can only do what is good. And that should cause us to to praise God, to praise him for his sovereign freedom and his sovereign power. Even the worst thing that he had to do, allow his son to die, he still took pleasure in because it was the right thing to do. It was what was necessary to achieve our salvation. So we can praise God that he's a powerful king, but coming to the next point, we can also praise God that he is a compassionate king. Verse 8 is a refrain that is repeated a number of times throughout the Bible. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Another translation for compassion is is mercy. The idea of mercy is not giving us what we deserve. This thing's the reason I mentioned earlier why the kingdom has not yet been fully restored because God is giving people a chance to repent and follow Jesus as their king. In the New Testament, Peter writes in his second letter that there will be a day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But he goes on to say the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. He's saying that God is not indecisive, he's not procrastinating, carries on. Instead, he is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. People are rebelling against God. They are not submitting to him as king, but he's not quick to exercise his justice. Unlike us, who run out of patience very quickly with people when we don't uh, get what we want. We despair when people don't come to faith or when they backslide in their faith or make foolish decisions. But God is patient. He's slow to anger. So who does he have compassion on? Well, firstly, he has compassion on all he has made. That's what it says in verse 9. Have a look down there. There's no one who is beyond his mercy. He's willing to forgive anyone who comes to him and asks for mercy. And so in verse 14, it says, The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every good thing. God has compassion on those who are weak, those who confess they need his strength. But what about those who trust in themselves and think they can do things in their own strength? Well, he still shows grace to them. It's what we call common grace. He still provides for them. He provides people with their food and their belongings and pleasures, whether or not they accept that these, these things come from God. He satisfies the desires of every living thing. But before we as Christians think, well, that doesn't seem fair, does it? Why is he providing them with all these pleasures when they don't even accept him as king? Why is he satisfying their desires? Well, if we become envious of others living with comfortable lives, getting their own way in this life, when it doesn't look like they deserve it or acknowledge it comes from God, that's because we haven't fully appreciated just how much more we have if we are Christians. If we are Christians, our souls have been restored. We've experienced the, the love of God. We have the hope of eternal life. In short, we've been saved. And so God has compassion on all he has made, but also he has compassion on his people. Verse 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. Here we see God fulfilling desires again, but these desires are the desires of those who fear him. How are their desires different from the desires of others? Well, the greatest desire of someone who calls on God, who, who fears God, is to be saved. They acknowledge their need for salvation. To be saved from God's anger, and punishment to be saved from an eternity without him, to be rescued and brought into his kingdom. And the great promise here is that if we do call on God, if we say to God, God, I need you. I can't carry on without you. I acknowledge that you are the true king. Then we're told the Lord is near to all who call on him. He hears their cry and he saves them. He saves us by sending Jesus to take the, the punishment we deserve for, for living our lives as if we are the king and failing to submit to him as the one true king. 
of course, when faced with a difficult worldly situation, many people do call out on God in desperation to, to help them with whatever it is. But often having been helped, they go back to living their lives as if God is not really there. To call on God in truth, as it says here, is to sincerely acknowledge that God is the true king and without him we are nothing. The great news is that once we are part of God's kingdom, he doesn't let us go. Uh, God uh, says in uh, verse 20 there, have a look down, God is watching over all who love him. Another translation is God preserves all who love him. But, and we can't hide from this warning, he says the wicked he will destroy. God is a powerful king. He is a compassionate king. So how do we respond to him? Well, we're praising him as we come together, as his people, which is what we do on a Sunday. As we come together in our, in our small groups, or in our own personal quiet times, we come and we praise him. And when we turn to, to asking God for, for our needs, we pray that the desires of our hearts that we are asking him to satisfy are his desires. That we are in step with him. But it's not just about praising God more in our corporate worship or, or in our prayers, but also it's proclaiming his greatness to those around us. Which brings us on to our final point. To proclaim the greatness and goodness of God. Praise God that he's a powerful king. Praise God that he is a compassionate King. Look at the different ways in which this proclamation is, is expressed in verses 4 to 7. It says, One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. God expects us to proclaim the greatness and goodness of God in everything we say, in everything we do. So what does that look like in practice, living out our daily lives? Our life on this earth is characterized by frustrations and trials, from the daily niggles of getting stuck in a traffic jam to the big issues of life-threatening illness. How do we respond to them. But if we trust in the greatness of God, in his sovereign power, then when things are out of our control, which they often will be, we don't need to get frustrated or anxious or fearful because we trust that he is in control. When people see the struggles that we're going through, we, we can be honest that we're finding it hard. But we can also share that our hope for getting through them is by trusting in God because his plans for us are perfect. That is proclaiming the greatness of God. What about God's glory? You know, the glorious splendor it says here of your majesty. How do we proclaim his glory? Well, we can't make him any more glorious than he already is. But we can proclaim his glory to others. How do we do that? Well, by showing that 
His glory is more important to me than my glory. The trouble is we're all too concerned about our own glory, if we're honest. We worry more about what people think of us than what they think of God. We crave the approval of others. We fear their rejection. And the temptation is to do something that makes us more popular rather than honouring God. If we truly believe that God is glorious, the most important thing to do is to fear him and not fear man. And that's why the psalmist says in verse 5, I will meditate on your wonderful works. When we have a, a bigger view of God and his glory, we will have a greater desire to trust him, worship him, and submit to him. Whatever the consequences, and however painful that may be. Psalm 119 says, My flesh trembles in fear of you. I stand in awe of your laws. What about God's goodness? How do we proclaim his goodness? Well, by acknowledging that in Jesus we, we have all we need. And therefore there is a constant joy in our hearts. Because his goodness is linked to his grace. When we know we are truly loved by God, and nothing can separate us from that love, then the greatest desire of our hearts is to grow in the knowledge of that love and to live a life of joy that pleases him. Jesus tells a story of a man who who found treasure in a field, and it says, then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. That man found the love of Jesus. And in his radical action, he showed to others just how valuable Jesus was to him, far more valuable than anything this world can offer. The words of the well-known song, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're coming to the Lord's table shortly, and Part of the reason we take the Lord's Supper together is to follow the instructions of our Lord. Through the Apostle Paul, he he said, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To proclaim the Lord's death is to say what Christ achieved on on that cross is sufficient for me. It's a message we need to to pass on to those who are not yet believers. It's a message to pass on to our children. Have a look at verse 4 there. It says, One generation commends your works to another. How do we proclaim the the goodness and greatness of of Christ to the next generation? We teach them about God. But also in the words of this little book written for, particularly for parents, we amaze them. We amaze them. With God. We show them just how much Jesus means to us through our behavior. Of course, we'll never be perfect. Um, and it's important to remind them that we will never be perfect and never will be in our strength. But that is why we need Jesus. He demonstrated his power by defeating sin and death. And he demonstrated his compassion by doing that for our sake. So let's ask. For God's help to admire him, his glory, his majesty, 
and for his help to proclaim his greatness and goodness to others. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your wonderful and awesome works. We praise you that you are a powerful king and for the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We praise you that you are a compassionate king, that you should want us to be a part of your kingdom. And Father, as we grow in our knowledge of your love for us, as we enjoy your many blessings, we pray that you would equip us to proclaim your greatness and goodness in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name, amen.